Hey, what's up? Welcome to Basecraft. So, I actually have two gigs this week. I already did one at the weekend in um, Garbo's in Castlebar, and it was really good, actually. It was a good atmosphere. People um, are starting to get used to coming out again and coming out of their shells, and yeah, it was a good buzz. Like, they were cheering for every song, and they just didn't want us to go off the stage. Like, they, we just had to run off the stage because they kept asking for encores, but all these gigs have really strict um, times and all this for them and uh, I'm doing a stream tomorrow in Cork so yeah that's pretty cool two gigs in one week that's like crazy it's like a, a tour or something but um, today I'm talking to Simon Francis and um, Simon is a master at the effects and it was funny while I was editing this I actually said I was going to sell my HX stomp this thing here in my hand and um, funny I've actually got into it a lot in the last while so I started making some cool sounds with it so I'm going to put one at the end of this just before the podcast starts a, set, a preset I made if, if anyone wants it just send me an email you can have it for free it's no bother it's probably crap anyway but it's, I was just kind of showing what you can do with this pedal how out there you can go with it and um, yeah so Simon is a master of the effects and um, he's featured on like Juan Alderete's uh pedal show and everything in america he toured with um ellie goulding for like eight years and he also was the bass player on a few tours with um kylie minogue and he did loads of kind of the synth parts on the bass so he, he he's very modest but like he would be up there with janet guizdala and tim lafave and all those people i'm i'm butchering these names but they're not e easy to say also i saw today that nate navarro went to see him when he was on tour because he wanted to learn some of his tricks so he's up there with all these guys who are like FX masters, tone alchemists. So you can see this is a long one. It's a two-parter if you're listening on a podcast app. But you no, know, we just kind of hit it off and I'm into the effects. But I had a lot to learn from him. And just his journey, his bass journey was really interesting. So uh, as you know, I don't cut these short. I just let them go. And um, yeah, was delighted to have him on. And he lives in Belfast. So hopefully I'm going to call up to his house there at some stage and just record a little episode going through pedals and messing around and that kind of stuff. So hope you enjoy it as usual like subscribe especially just like this on wherever you're listening and uh, that helps me out a lot and uh, yeah talk to you soon Wolf versus tiger. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm like, it's either that or like my shiny bald head. So, <laughs> sure. like, I feel like I've not got the same sort of like nice soft focus lens thing that you've got going on though. So, oh my god, that took me nine months to figure out how to do that really? with, wor with workarounds. <laughs> <laughs> it was an absolute nightmare trying to figure because they're not those uh, fancy cameras. They're not supposed to be left turned on for thirty minutes for more yeah. than thirty minutes. So you have to do a load of hacks to trick the camera into staying on for more than 30 minutes oh really so they'll just sort of like auto off they always turn off uh, and even if you have a battery it won't let you use it for more than 30 minutes so you have to do a, like a load of stuff to trick the camera and there's loads of people online show you how to do it so it's a disaster <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel like that's why i've i've, I've avoided <laughs> And stuff as much as yeah. I can. I think you're better off going down the rabbit hole of learning about pedal, bass pedals, and audio yeah. software than cameras. <laughs> I mean, sometimes <laughs> it's definitely like it has its ups and downs. 
So yeah, what's going on with you, man? I think you've been busy with a lot of production, have you, during, all, during the last year? Yeah, like, it was... Yeah, because I mean, I guess it was like everything live just sort of ended. Um, and I was sort of in a weird a weird break anyway. I think sort of end of February, early March, I'd sort of stepped away from my time playing with Ellie Golding had come to an end. So I was sort of in that, what's next? space and then a pandemic came along is that normal um, in the session world that um a gig will come to the end like is that it's kind of comes with the job you get kind of booked from tour to tour don't you yeah i think so i mean like that that gig was a weird one because i was on it for trying to think how long like i was on that gig for about eight years Um, it's a long and like that that was relatively unusual um and like the drummer and guitarist on that as well they'd they'd had like a decade on the gig Mm. so it was it was sort of unconventional in that sense in that certainly other pop gigs that i was aware of at that time hadn't really held on to their bands as long as that there'd have been more changing but yeah it just sort of i guess it's like part and parcel of the thing um and it just sort of reached reached its end um that sort of thing happening so I was sort of in that thing of like walking away from like what had been like the main kind of everything else I'd ever done had always sort of worked around that so it was like any other gig I'd done there was always a little bit of like you'd get like the band assemble siren would go off and you'd sort of drop drop whatever else you were working on and kind of return to that gig so it's been it was that sort of thing of being like oh now's the time this probably comes to an end and then the pandemic comes (laughs) it was like (laughs) It was a bit, in some ways it was quite nice because it allowed a bit more space to sort of work things out. Um, it's terrible. Yeah, that's, so that's your bread and butter. Like, so it was probably terrifying to think that it would come to an end. But Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's also the thing. It's like working out that, like there's, there's that thing of like knowing, knowing when to like walk away from a gig, which I'm not sure like I'd ever really thought about. Um, mm. Or like knowing when, when sort of, a project has seen its sort of course and like I think for yeah. everyone like there's that thing where you know and you might it, that's not necessarily to say it's like a full stop and you wouldn't return to something but I think there's that thing where um like that I guess that system that exists around that project for a time has maybe achieved what it can at that point and maybe for the betterment of everyone it's kind of that thing of moving on but I think like as a certainly like starting out it's that I guess like, I got that gig in that was like my mid twenties, so it's also that thing where it's like uh, up until that point, it was like I just need to get the gig. Yeah. So my focus had always been on getting gigs. <laughs> never, <laughs> never that thing of like, it does there ever come a point where there's maybe an appropriate space to be like, oh, actually, my time on this is done. It's time to explore other things. So it's been like this weird sort of forced, forced sort of removal from all of that, from all the stuff that I sort of was comfortable with and. Um, like I've been living in Belfast for like almost eight years now as well. So it was also like, but I'd never been around town really because mm. I was always touring. It's a nice city. So, it's a really nice city. Yeah. I And I love it. And it's, and like now I actually have friends because <laughs> it was like before it was like I knew people and, and I knew like a handful of people had, you know, like one or two good friends. But in terms of like the music scene or anything here, I had sort of no real kind of, um, involvement or like uh connection to it really how did you end up in belfast what was that how did you end up in 
my wife. I, got, I was I, thinking I, I that it's, it's, it's always the, the woman or her partner brings yeah. you to these places where you know nobody. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be that they like. It's almost like people go out and collect people and then they bring them back. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we we were meant to be here temporarily, and then um, we had a, like we had our first kid, and um, and then it was just again like I was touring so much, it just made sense to stay here where we had like family support mm-hmm. and we were in London before that and the cost of living in Belfast was sort of significant to the point that like the commute just made sense it kind of in fairness when you're on a big tour it's just one commute meet the band yeah. and then you're all together gone for a few months yeah. like. I mean that was it so it was sort of like yeah it just made all of that easier and more affordable for us and then I was able to like in the gaps it you know flights were always quite affordable so it was easy enough to like to jump over to London for like odds and sods of things and doing bits with friends so yeah so it was that weird thing where I sort of lived in this place but had never really properly properly engaged with it and it sort of like teetered around the edge on it and then I think like the last couple of years I'd, I'd had a bit less time I think I worked out the other day it's now been like four years or so since I've actually done like a proper solid block of touring like I've done like little short runs but mm. um so I think in that time I'd sort of start to make more relationships and then that meant that kind of again like helpfully like weirdly it set me up quite well for the pandemic because it meant that there are a bunch of kind of creative relationships here and just friendships that I had time to like invest in and um and then really fortunately for me that's kind of led to like a load of really kind of satisfying creative projects and a bunch of like production and recording work and um yeah like I've been really lucky to have bits of sort of external like remote sessions as well and things like mm. that so it's been it's been that thing of just sort of like treading water and trying to stay afloat but sort of in the midst of that getting a sense of um like I think like loads of musicians you all like it's rare I think that you ever get someone who really just does does one thing and doesn't want to at least dabble in other things mm-hmm. so it's been nice sort of to have that forced space to no um, it's a really interesting point you make even for myself like I've been in an original rock band for 10 years and not that I ever thought that I'd do something else but now that this happened it's like oh this is what life's life without my band yeah. and it's a bit shit <laughs> yeah. but I'm making the best of it you know but at least now I've seen what it's like not being in the band and um, being out on my own and doing it my own stuff. But it's like great perspective for everyone. You know, you can see yeah. see something that you probably never would have taken the risk to see. You know, yeah, I sort of had that thing where, yeah, I'm like I could have never have afforded to have chosen to not tour for a year. <laughs> yeah, I could exactly. I couldn't really afford not to tour for a year. And in fair of all it, people as well, you're really well set up for this crap because your class at technology like <laughs> there's some well, musicians that mightn't even have owned an interface before the lockdown and then people are like we'll do a remote session I don't even own a laptop they could have been saying <laughs> I definitely felt like there was a bit of that hustle at the beginning of everyone sort of like oh shit we've got to find a way of like of making this happen and yeah I mean it, it yeah it's been like it it has been good it's that difficult thing of like not wanting to be glib about it as well and not sort of try and be like oh but a great year um because mm. I definitely <laughs> haven't in lots of other ways no. but, <laughs> but it's like I guess it's like that thing of I guess as humans we're like meaning making machines aren't we so it's like that thing where 
something like this you your brain sort of scrambles to make sense of it and try and like and if certainly for me it's like if I could hold on to my mental health for long enough <laughs> yeah like I know that I'll sort of be able to level out and and sort of figure out something from it and I don't like one of my big takeaways from it is like performance and like playing shows like I just miss terribly mm. um and I realize even like in the studio I'm sort of constantly seeking um opportunities for performance in that so whether it's like like just setting things going and creating a bit of chaos and trying yeah. to like respond to like if there can't be other if I can't be jamming with other musicians or kind of in a live you know environment of having that push and pull with um other musicians on the stage if I can set up synths or effects pedals that will push and pull against what I'm doing and forces me to sort of pay attention and and perform to and with them I think I realize a lot of how I operate is is sort of focused around that and so that it's been helpful sort of identifying that and being able to scratch that itch but like right now I'm like I just desperately want to I'm not even really properly like jammed or played with anyone outside of again sort of outside of a studio context of it being like right Mm. there's a song we've got two hours make it happen and like yeah and I really enjoy that it's really fun but it's a very different thing to you know having spent like 15 you, you know like 15 20 years or whatever of like solidly I, you know being like a bass player it's like the moment you sort of pick up a bass you're immediately in a band because <laughs> and like, anyone one few root notes and you can play a song and they yeah. can't find a bass player yeah if you can pluck like an open e you're done like this yeah. is it you're made so <laughs> yeah so i think it's like having that taken away i'm like okay i definitely sort of have that thing of the last year being like oh could i could i just do studio stuff and i'm like it's fun but i think for me there's a vitality of live stuff that I'm like no I definitely want that to sort of continue and yeah I'm sort of getting increasingly sort of anxious for that to return but you know there's not really I don't think there's any way of predicting when that will properly like yeah, you'd, burst you'd even, forth no way and you, I actually <laughs> might have a gig in Northern Ireland in, by the end of the year but uh, you'd, oh, miss, you'd miss the oomph of the the amp like even I never plug in my pedal board at home I'm always just like using the laptop or whatever but yesterday i don't know i was watching some of your pedal videos so i said i'd plug in my pedal board and <laughs> had the amp turned up and i just loving the oomph of like the big muff and oh, it's yeah. just you just can't compare to having a real amp vibrating air and just no. making the sounds yeah i had like well I, I ended up like typically i got a new like amp and speaker setup during the lockdown like the first one <laughs> and um which i'd got for sort of other other projects that I was meant to have over the summer last year <laughs> so but I've got like the um I think it was like the first one in Europe like the Mesa TT800 mm. so I have like this 800 watt amp <laughs> oh, which is like the loudest amp I've ever owned <laughs> have it on like a point two or something like barely turn on the volume yeah like I've like I've been using it as a preamp at home because mm. it's got a really nice um like tube DI output on it oh nice yeah and it sounds great um but I, I that's what i've used it with and like with headphones and um like the studio i'm in it sort of exists it's on like the mezzanine floor of a warehouse for like a live sound production company so like a few months ago i just plugged plugged everything up and turned it up really loud in the warehouse <laughs> um and then i think it was thursday i brought everything in and we have like a little live room 
and I just and set up my amp in the live room and just lay on the floor <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just playing notes just just a sort of like I just had a quiet day so I was like yeah. oh, I just want to I had that thing I was like I really miss the sound of like a loud mm. amp and I was like I'm just gonna like turn it up and like lie on the floor and play it and just feel yeah. <laughs> feel that again but so. you react to it like even when you have the loud amp with the distortion especially or um, mm. fuzz get all those harmonics extra harmonics above the sound and you'll just p- play something completely different usually yeah. something a l- maybe a bit less complex because you're reacting to all those harmonics coming off the fuzz which you won't really do if you just have a pair of headphones on and a fake distortion sound yeah yeah i could probably do like i feel like i'm so used to that <laughs> like I, I don't know if you ever have that thing where like you think back to when you were like younger or first starting out and i remember sort of having that moment where I kind of had a bit more focus on wanting to make music like a thing that I could try and do in a way that would sustain me mm. and like getting really into like Victor Wooten videos and like being like I've got to learn if I'm going to be like I, I went through this <laughs> whole like I need to be a chameleon phase sort of thing yeah yeah and um and I had all this facility on the instrument that I just don't have now because it's like my my sort of career has pretty much just been playing one note through a ton of effects <laughs> just and just having like a really rich sound so it's like you just play one note that sounds massive and it's like i i always have that thing now that when i finally turn all the distortion and the effects off i'm like oh crap like, what do <laughs> I play? one note doesn't sound as good as it used it yeah but, so what do i do with all this space but i was reading um that you did like a kylie minogue tour and mm. you did all the synth on the like was there was no actual synth player on the tour and you did all of it on the bass or was there also a synth player yeah so there was like a synth player doing keys and um all the obvious key stuff but all the synth bass stuff i just co- kind of ended up covering on bass guitar so we the beginning of that tour it was for the her album golden um which was like the previous one to the most recent one so it was, was it 2018 maybe um and the initial run of shows were like small like the smallest venues she'd ever done so it was like um like gorilla in manchester so like you know sub a thousand sort of capacity Mm. spaces so the stages were small so at the beginning there was sort of chat about me having a synth um and then it just became really apparent there wasn't going to be any space for that um and there was a discussion about that being on track and and i was like oh i'd really like to i'd done like a few like with i guess over like the eight years with ellie golding it had been like i'd just progressively done less and less with the keyboard to the point that like i think i'd only ever really play the keyboard if i was i do a lot of like playing a synth line on the keyboard and playing a bass line on the bass sort of thing so like sort of tapping it with yeah with my fretting hand um but with Kylie's stuff I was like actually it's so distinct like the the bass synth stuff is all all there and I know that um Deshaun the bass player who'd sort of been on that gig you know for sort of the seven or eight years preceding my kind of time on it he he'd done a lot of effects stuff so but yeah like it's that thing where you I arrived on the first day with this pedal board like the size of a table (laughs) (laughs) I remember like the front of house guy was like that's a big pedal board and like I was like ah shit I really need to um make this happen but yeah but like when I sort of walked away from that gig it was 
it was like a mate, you know, the front of house guy was like, I never had to touch your EQs or faders mm. or do anything with you at the thing. And um, yeah, like managed to cover all the bass synth parts just with, yeah, the bass and pedals, which was, it was fun. Like it, that was the, like, I think that felt like the, the first time I had like properly walked into something and been like, it was, a, that was like a whole new camp for me, really. I didn't mm. know. I sort of loosely knew some of the people, Christian Galino, the like who's the keys player and like band leader. Um, I knew him a bit before and one of the, and the two backing singers I'd worked with before, but everyone else was sort of new. And the M, the musical director and that Steve Anderson, I hadn't worked with before. So everything else I'd sort of done bef before that with lots of effects had been with Joe Clegg, who MDs Ellie. So and he and I do a lot of work together. Yeah, yeah, it was like really I assist you. him in his stuff. So anything we've ever played on together, I've always had that, like, he knows, um, he knows what I'm trying to do. Um, but it's a really different thing, sort of going into somewhere and being aware that someone maybe has no, like, understanding of, of what I'm attempting to do. So mm. I, that was definitely the first time I felt that pressure of being like, this needs to, like, from day one be, like... I mean, and that gig was like, I arrived on day one and it was meant to just sort of be like a setup day. And I think like Kylie had been in Cuba or something like recording a music video. And they were like, oh, she might pop in and say hi. And then she popped in, said hi. And then was like, right, let's run the set. And it was like day one. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, great. I was like, and it, I'd had like maybe a week of like prep for the whole thing. Mm. So it definitely felt like, but yeah, so that, that was like, that was really fun and that's sort of been my um my sort of personal war against like bass on track <laughs> like, <laughs> what was your uh, process for like con i suppose you listened to kylie's new album and then you just had your ridiculous pedal board out at home and just trying to figure out how to emulate because i assume the parts you're emulating are just keyboards since yeah um yeah i mean it's it's sort of like I'm not really doing anything particularly new. Like I, I feel like on, I guess on like bass forums and stuff years ago, there were loads of people kind of, I guess, looking for synthy sounds on bass and talking about like octave fuzz envelope. And so for me, it's all sort of come out of that. And then so I guess like ear training. So, um, on like prepping for a gig like that, or I guess any of the gigs I've done, you'll get sent like the mix track, and then generally you'll get sent like stems or multis um, with everything sort of broken down, um, which is really helpful. So you can listen to kind of things in isolation and work out how everything relates. And so it sort of just comes from there. And I do a bit of, I guess like with anything, I've got certain like sounds and palettes that I go to. Um, so there was like, there's a sound that was in the like purple line six, but the FM four, um, mm. it was like the, like at the same time as like the DL four. And there's like a synth string patch in that, which has then been like everything line six has made ever since. And like, that's like my go-to if there's anything that's like sawtoothy, like Rees bass sort of thing or like, um, so like that was like pretty much that sound is what I used for like the chorus of love me like you do with Ellie gold. Like that, that was pretty much the sound that like mm. made with a bit of modulation. Um, so there's things like that, that I'll kind of go to. And 
and as time's gone on before I used to really focus on creating like like all the really try and get all the microscopic details of what was maybe on a record but I think as time's gone on I sort of feel like actually having a palette that you draw from on live stuff is like I don't know if you've ever watched like videos of like Shaka Khan live um doing like ain't nobody and it's like mm. no one ever plays that on synth it's almost always on bass guitar yeah but it sounds and like feels just as good as the real thing so I think there's also that thing of for me there's been that learning process of knowing like just how much of it to recreate or yeah exactly. I don't um, need to get that that exact synth sound I've got yeah. this killer bass synth sound that is just going to be brilliant live and no one's going to care yeah so it was like and I guess like as an example of that there was a song on that record of Kylie's called Raining Glitter and it was like it it was like this really like chewy um almost like sinewy like synth based thing and this real like greasy flavor and mm. I kind of got to a point of really having that sound done but it playing it just didn't feel like the way that 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 sort of effects chain was working wasn't didn't feel very satisfying and so like i guess as an example on that one i just ended up using like an envelope filter and this sort of detuning effect and a little bit of octava underneath it but just a lot of dirt and so it was this really quite dirty but tight bass sound and it was like that was what like one of those things where i remember we played that song and it was like everyone sort of lit up and was like oh that's <laughs> and it's that sort of thing of being like oh yeah like sometimes it's there's that degree of sort of interpretation and it's still like when you listen to it compared to the record it's that weird thing where its functional role within the mix is the same mm. um and so i think that's more my focus and i i guess like with lots of practice i feel like a lot of it happens intuitively now like i'll sort of hear a sound and i think my ear and i guess like my audio memory or whatever has that thing of being like oh there's that sound I can get that with this or with this and like I mean like now with things like there's like the Panda MIDI Future Impact and like the Source Audio C4 like with things like that it's like you know it is a full synth pretty much so it's mm. you can approach that in the same way you can any sound design but it's a lot of the time on pop records you're not even talking about one sound it's maybe like five five things layered on top of each other so some of it is like trying to work out how to do that and so, sometimes like sometimes even with like a Moog bass sound you're just best off just playing clean like I've I've sort of had to learn that where what are the times where actually for the performance and for the energy of the song actually just moving it to clean bass sometimes you would never know that it's yep. not synth um, in fairness live like as well it's a difference between you know when they're mixing those CD those songs they're being mixed to be heard on a phone speaker mm. but like when you're on a stage and you've got thousands of watts you can get away with pushing out all that bass and so yeah and i think like especially at like i mean it's it was different that to with kylie being smaller venues but especially as your venues get bigger and your pa systems get bigger like the battle to have to be able to hear the note of a bass guitar is like and i i think i guess i probably should have prefaced all of this like i the front of house engineer with Ellie Golding, a guy called Joe Harling, was massively instrumental in me being able to make all of this work because it was mm. I he had ears that I just massively trusted, and we were able to kind of foster a relationship where he was honest 
with me and was like, sounds shit if it did. Um, But I was able to kind of let him know what I was trying to do. And I remember like really early on, he was like, I don't really know what to do with you at bass. And he'd come from like the gig he'd done before. That was like Michael Kiwanuka. So he, you know, he'd been like very clear band roles. And and I kind of was like, you know, you just need to think of it like a synth. And so we, we had a lot of back and forth of working out where where the frequency range was available and because um, you sort of like especially as I guess at that point I sort of got involved in playing for Ellie as she was sort of ascending in bigger venues and by the time you're doing like an arena you know mid-range starts to go mm. out of the mix in terms like to kind of give space for the vocal and it was that I couldn't have I think without a front of house engineer to sort of reflect back on what was and wasn't working and like a lot of my signal chain sort of developed in response to that um and like I ended up using well I'd used like a DOD meat box before and then when Mantic brought out the density hulk I moved to that and so I always run that as like a parallel path so that's sort of the first effect in my chain but it only it sends out the sub to like a separate DI line, and essentially what that meant is because there was always that thing where we were like working with front of house guys before, and it would be like well, I need clean, yeah. and I was always like, well, there's no point in me sending you clean because you're just kind of going to get a bass going bonk bonk, mm. but the sound is like wop wop. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you don't want the clean coming out; you want that crazy yeah. sound. But sometimes you need that the modulations of that sound, particularly in a larger venue maybe where you'd normally use like a low pass filter for that you maybe want a band pass you want to cut some of the lows on that because actually if you're sort of filter sweeping a really bass heavy thing in a in like a big venue it'll just swamp everything and it doesn't it sort of won't work in that mix you don't have the same control as you would i think you know mixing or recording something whereas the density hulk meant that I could under something like that if you still needed that weight I could have something that's purely creating just massive sub frequency Mm. and that can be controlled however the front of house engineer chooses to which then gives me that freedom above it to have um, essentially like thinner synth sounds that that will respect the mix more or find those places of cutting through but I yeah so I think like it's definitely not like being a and you know that then meant that you know it's totally that groundwork that again like having a musical director like joe clegg who let me explore that and and had a similar sort of drive and passion for destroying backing tracks um it, it <laughs> meant that so there was like that environment to foster it you know and when you're on those big pop star gigs would you need to learn like a big repertoire like i, I doubt it's like being in the e street band it's like <laughs> this is the set list for the tour and that's what we're sticking to or would would some of those big acts throw a, a you know a curveball and be like i'm playing this album track <laughs> from like 10 years ago tonight i mean it was i think with with ellie that's been, i guess that being my like my primary experience of that that was very particular because it was like i came on board in album two so it was like there was only really a repertoire of like 20 songs to learn which wasn't which was kind of easy enough and then as it's 
you know I was sort of there then as the next album came out and as other releases came so all of that stuff you were sort of learning as you went and your brain sort of hold you know holds it kind of loosely and so there we we'd have like I remember we had like I remember actually <laughs> we had like one one like festival and as we were walking to stage like Joe the MD turns to me he's like right we're gonna do we're doing this song tonight everyone and I was like oh shit like what do I do in that song and the song started and it was it actually it was one that I was like I know knowing the verses I do like these sub drops on the bass guitar with an expression pedal and I thought but I do something on the synth and I was like but I don't know what I do on the synth (laughs) (laughs) and I just remember it hitting and I did this sub drop and I played a note on the synth that I thought would be the right note and it was not the right note and I just sort of slid up and down the thing just hoping to find the thing (laughs) and so (laughs) I feel like the most of the first (laughs) yeah like in the most of the first verse I was just like doing this and then when the chorus hit everything sort of clicked into place and I was like I know where I am now and we walked off stage that that like night and I was like guys I'm so sorry about first one of Mm. and like no one was like what do you mean it sounded great (laughs) (laughs) she didn't do a James Brown on you and she's like (laughs) I'm, yeah. Simon, I'm docking you 50 quid for, for that. I know. Luckily, not, everyone thought that it was like, I don't know. I was like, I just remember doing it and I was like, oh shit, I've done it now. I sort of had that mentality of like, oh, I guess if you play like a mistake over and over again, it becomes intentional. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that was how I faked, faked that moment. Um, but, um, but yes, like when I went on to Kylie, it was, I was just sent the new album to learn and then there was like a handful of older songs um i guess like the, the sort of like the greatest hits so mm. but it really like the the initial run so i was sort of booked for this kind of initial like underplay small venue it was all around the album release run and we were pretty much just performing that record for the most part and then within that were some like rearrangements of you know things that can't get you out of my head and spinning around in a in sort of the like country disco world that that record was in but then like night one of that tour (laughs) like the crowd requested a song and kylie just started playing it and i can't even remember what the song was but i did not know it (laughs) and and it was just like guitarist hands or something like that yeah like it was totally that i mean and like um christian galino the keyboard player on that he he like as he again sort of like co MDs that with Steve Anderson and he he acts as band leader in that so he sort of is able to like we had him on in our ears on the mic but um it was fun like I in like in previous lives that I've lived I've done like a fair amount of that sort of like I I think like I had when I was kind of younger I grew up going to church and a lot of that was you know you did a lot of like off the cuff like people just sing a song from a multi-thousand song repertoire that it's assumed that you're familiar with um Mm. so I think I got quite good at working out how to blag that but that felt like a very sort of like being thrown in the deep end of needing to sort of draw on that skill again um (laughs) that's where you cut your teeth wasn't it doing that um Christian contemporary music yeah so like my my sort of first forays into like being paid to do music were yeah was like was CCM stuff and like some praise and worship gigs um and it was like I think like I I sort of had that I guess like as you grow I you know I sort of moved away from that world and ha- had a bit of that sort of embarrassment about being involved in 
some of that industry and there's definitely like an ugly side to some of that or certain you know certainly things certainly things about the way that that world operates that don't align with um some like my ideology and, and values but i think mm-hmm. i think that like moments like that i really realized that um the tool set that i gained from that has been invaluable um and i think even just being used to sort of needing to find like an immediate um rapport with a bunch of musicians and you know that sort of experience of being able to play every week with different musicians and there being enough of like a shared sense of some repertoire but and like particularly like the expression of like christian church that i was involved at it was a lot of there was a lot of like improvised kind of moments of music within that as well so like i think that really kind of stretched those muscles that have been Mm. yeah like really valuable for me so yeah like that was yeah as like a teenager playing bass it was like playing in church on sundays and then like playing in punk bands with friends in the week that's class though you were getting both schools you were getting like how to be a rocker and you were getting a more more (laughs) academic thing in the church like yeah and then like and then having that thing of like i was always trying to bring like uh, like fuzz pedals and synths into the church so which was always like sort of received with like varying degrees of <laughs> like suspicion and sometimes like real acceptance but um i remember like i remember got like i got like my first filter pedal and it was like the um electro harmonics like enigma cubals thing oh yeah big massive I'd, thing like, huge footprint yeah and, everything. and like i love it i i think it's a really underrated filter but I remember like setting it up and I've been playing with it at home on like, I think I'm probably on just on headphones and doing like filter suits with it. And I was like, that sounds huge. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And like, I'm going to try, see if I can like do that. And like in church on Sunday and there was like a song and it was like this sort of like mellow atmospheric thing. And I was like, oh yeah, some like deep synth bass swells would be great here. <laughs> and like the resonance was just so high on it. And I just, my earphones just had not been able to like impress upon me just how much low end was being generated oh. and i remember like the subs under the stage just shook and a bunch of the mic stands just oh, fell geez. over summon the devil <laughs> yeah i mean i was like you know maybe some people will think it's like some like move of god or something but, <laughs> uh, but that like that like i mean like even like that moment was one of those i was so excited by that um that, that like you know those are all sort of the beginnings of like wanting to like pursue exploring those sounds more and um yeah but it's yeah like that stuff has definitely then been helpful with like learning repertoire and being able to sort of blag your way through songs that you don't know and um i guess you sort of learn i guess like a practical music theory that allows you or my experience is like you gain from it some sort of intuitive sense of being able to sort of predict where harmony might go Mm. um which is really helpful and is again like not one of those things that i'd ever really sort of cognitively considered and then i think it's then as time goes on and you maybe chat to other people and like how do you do that and you're like oh yeah like i probably have this thing of i'm aware that if the melodies are sort of a well structured or well written song the harmony and melody will sort of move together to lead you to where where it's gonna go and it i think it's that thing of if you can if you have enough practice you know, yeah you hear it in your ear like even if you can't explain it like if uh, like i'm only 
dipping into it more myself i did a lot as a teenager and i had lessons from um a drummer he was just doing theory but like with all you know secondary dominance and that they mm. usually go to the fifth chord they go up a fifth like there's there's a formula and even yeah. if you can't explain it and you've been playing music enough you hear it in your ear and you'll hear yeah. where these things go like yeah and i think we're so like you know all that stuff is so familiar it's like even if you don't know what you're doing you sort of it's kind of what you'll end up doing anyway so i like a lot of that's been really helpful um and it's definitely i think allowed me it's it's been a, like a load of skills that have been really helpful as at like working as a session musician to sort of understand those ways that you yeah i think just the importance even of just kind of having some degree of connection with the musicians you're working with and um because it's what like it's wild sometimes like you work with people and, and people just don't understand that um you know like it's hard to make music being performed on a stage by a bunch of musicians feel and sound good if people don't feel and sound good hanging out with each other yeah like um <laughs> I think that's such an important part of it. So I think, you know, I think things like that were, were always sort of, that was helpful to learn and and to be able to like, I think it also meant like, you know, the punk bands I was in or um, like all the own bands that I had with friends, it was like, we were all like the same level pretty much. Like we'd all, we'd all learnt to play at the same time and we were all the same age. Whereas it was like, for me, again, at church, it was like, you don't you know like there were drummers and bass players and guitarists and keyboard players like again it, it, i was really fortunate like at the church that i was at there are a number of musicians who were working professionally within mm. various contexts and so like it was like i could have died i could have been like jamming with my friends that week and like come out being like oh i'm the best musician in our band or whatever <laughs> and then like <laughs> on sunday like i'm playing with a drummer who can play polyrhythms with every single limb and i'm like yeah. oh shit hum- i that's, suck that's, hu- <laughs> that's humbling at least like, yeah but isn't that like an old adage the best way to get better is to play with people who are you know are above you as a musician oh, yeah because i would like, always like learning and chasing from them like you know yeah i'd always rather be like the worst musician in any given band <laughs> like, <laughs> and like in fairness i feel like that i've again like I feel like, like definitely when I walked onto like the early golden gig I was so intimidated by the other mm. other musicians and it was like I'd not I'd not really done a gig of that level before then um and yeah like it was like the Joe on drums and like Chris Ketley the guitarist and the, the keys player was a guy called Max Cook and the three of them were just like yeah they're like those know, musical director people they're super yeah. they like they know your parts they know the drummers the bass everyone's parts like yeah i mean and that is the thing like all three of them like and i think that again that was sort of the unique thing about that gig actually that all four of us in the band but when i kind of came came into that i i really sort of just i viewed myself as a musician and i before that oh like and like as a musician i really just thought of myself as a bass player and i dabbled in like bits of production before then and bits of writing but that had always been in like bands I was in and and I'd done like bits of things of like maybe helping out like local bands or other people but it was never really anything I was like I could do that for other people and then walking into that and there being sort of like three musicians who could all like who's you know like production chops were all to like a good level they could all play multiple instruments (laughs) really well (laughs) and like (laughs) 
and you know they were all attractive and like all like really well groomed and it was like I like even like it was all of that sort of stuff like I remember sort of like working in walking in on the first day and a lot of the gigs I'd been doing before that had been much more um like indie alternative kind of gig so I had like this my beard was a bit unkempt and I'd been wanting to grow out my hair I remember like really early on I was like looking around and I was like oh shit I should probably tidy myself up what would they call it a a front facing industry especially when you're in a pop band you kind of you can't really come in with a a ripped t-shirt and a pair of shitty jeans (laughs) like Ellie Goulding is there like looking amazing the rest of the band look unreal and you're just there like scrolling yeah that definitely was like I definitely felt that and had that like oh maybe I shouldn't be here um and then yeah I mean like that sort of reached its apex so like there was a point I think on the first US tour I did I was like (laughs) I'd got so sort of like tired of like I sort of felt this vanity sort of growing up in myself so I ended up just shaving my head on the door because I was like I'm tired of worrying about my hair because everyone else was like I was like man like everyone else is so like well put together and I was like that's just not I was like that just wasn't really me at all I was like I just sort of you know and just throw whatever on and um so I was like I'm just gonna shave my head and then I grew it grew it really long and then and then I was balding so now I just shave all the time which suits me quite well although it's more like it's higher maintenance than I thought it'd be but um but yeah I mean that it was really intimidating walking onto that and then it was the same I had the same thing with Kylie as well it was um the level of musicianship on that gig is wild and Mm. um and I really was aware of that and um, a lot of the gigs you know I'd I'd kind of done Ellie and I'd done like little bits and pieces in the gaps and um, but it'd been a lot of the other stuff I'd done again it'd been had been so effects heavy um, like I'd done a bunch of stuff with Becky Hill and doing sort of dancey stuff which was so much fun like doing all like the big like FM synthy dance bass lines on a bass mm. guitar but none of it was that complex to play and it was coming on to Kylie where there was that disco funk stuff her music gosh. is fun for bass like it has yeah a, a good uh high tempo and some co- really cool bass lines yeah I mean and like bass lines that really drive the song and mm. so for me I really was like oh man I'm gonna be so exposed on this um so <laughs> yeah like I but it was great I learned again like I learned so much from you know the everyone on that in that band was like i mean christian the keyboard player has maybe the greatest pocket of any musician i've ever worked with regardless of their instrument just his his sense of time and where he sits around it and um that was probably the first gig that i've worked on where really the rhythm section is drums bass and keys um you know and it's all those sort of like clav or roads parts or really quite percussive things and it that sort of having that synergy and tom meadows the drummer on that is just he's so tight and it you know it's all that disco like pretty much fall to the floor and that kind of electronic informed stuff and his sort of attention to that detail and the way that he builds drama and tension and opens up drum things even though the pattern maybe isn't changing there these ways that the energy ebbs and flows and being able to sort of yeah i i kind of came away from that and learnt so much and um it was nice to sort of 
feel like I got away with it. <laughs> and um, I'd say that's amazing, but it must have been amazing. Uh, like, do you ever just stop and think, I can't believe I've su- I've seen some of the gigs you did, like, and there's to be <laughs> hundred thousand people or something. Like, do you, did, did you just take it all in your stride? But I was also thinking. Uh, I saw a video of you with Juan. How do you pronounce it? Juan Alderete. Oh yeah, Juan Alderete. Yeah. Was that almost more of a pinch me moment, sitting in oh. chatting to him, than playing to a hundred thousand people? That because you're like this someone from when you were a teenager that inspired you, and you're just sitting yeah. there chatting to him about pedals and playing the bass. That must have I been mean, as big yeah. as seeing hundred thousand people. Yeah, I mean, the, it's to be all of that stuff feels really surreal. Yeah, I mean, like those those gigs of that size are. A, a mad there's a weird like there's a weird sort of like not detachment but there I think when um I would get much more nervous playing in like a small like pub sort of mm. gig venue because you can see everyone and like if one person isn't enjoying the gig that's like 10% of the audience <laughs> my experience <laughs> and you can't see the, the audience with the big gigs because the lights yeah. are so bright <laughs> Yeah, and I think there's something almost like chemical that happens when you have like a hundred thousand humans together. It's sort of like that one person not having a good time. You know, you can always find someone who's having the best time of their life. Mm. Um, but it's definitely so. I think sometimes actually the danger, the danger of like the big gigs is it's really easy to almost sort of like dehumanize the crowd and sort of not not really see them as people anymore. And it's a, it's just a crowd. Mm. Um, and I think if you don't sort of I guess both helpfully if you sort of just engage with that any sort of sense of fear or nerve sort of go um and yeah like I guess like for me that it did get to a point where it was so sort of normal and regular and it's the op- it's the outside stuff where you can actually see the crowd like whereas when you're playing like an arena gig with the lights and stuff you can't really see the crowd um and so um, like you can feel the energy um but it's more that Whereas, yeah, like, I mean, like, the one thing was wild. I mean, like, it was, yeah, like, he'd been... I le- I think for me growing up, it was, like, the big... My kind of big bass heroes were, like... Uh, like, the two, like, real prominent ones for me were, like, Justin Meldal Johnson and, and one. And both of them, their sort of use of effects pedals and creating sort of interesting sounds and that, like really kind of creative approach to their instrument was just a massive inspiration um for me and really i've I've essentially built a career on ripping them off and (laughs) um what do you sorry to have him invite you on his tv show yeah i mean like that so i think like we connected on instagram or something and then we we'd message back and forth every now and then and i was always like this is mental and then um, you're trying to be cool talking to him oh hi how are you (laughs) but you're saying to your wife this is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, that was totally it. And then he was like, I think there was one time he's like, "Oh, you're going to be in LA," and I was like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Oh man, like come and hang out." And um, so like the first because I've done like two interviews with Pedals and Effects, and like the first time that first one was the first time I'd met him in person, and it was like he was like, "I'll come down to my studio space," and I sort of arrived, and he was like, "I don't want to talk to you too much." I want to capture that, like that yeah. sort of. It's like doing so, I mean, this. It's like you, you can't have a conversation before you press record. You just yeah, go. yeah. So it was. I mean, and it was wild because it was like walking in, and it's like him and then Nick Reinhardt's there, and and in terms of like for me, two really, you know, both of them are so kind of 
inspiring creative forces um yeah and it was just mad sort of being sat there in the room and and sort of having that chat and and having that moment of realizing like i think in that video i did the thing where i showed one how i use the density hulk in parallel to like a micro synth with a chorus after yeah that's what you were showing how to retain the low end or something he was really yeah interested. he was like whoa that's clever. and it was like i think like he texted me like a couple of days after that and was like dude i just did that at a gig <laughs> and it was that thing where i was like this is really weird yeah but there's this sort of um uh yeah that 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 relationship shifted to that and you know that and it you know that kind of got to a point where you know anytime i was in la i'd have i'd have seen him and hung out with him and um and just like he he is like just such a light of like musical joy like i've mm. not you know i've just not met i'd like again like i feel like when i was starting out doing session stuff i'd meet older musicians who were all just a bit jaded yeah that that's it was not, like that never is that inspiring is it like no and I, I always was like the like i guess like that first point i made at the beginning where i was like i never really thought about when to walk away from something i remember though like chatting to someone who was like in their 40s and hating music and i remember being like i want to quit before i get to there or like or make sure i never get there and i felt for like the longest time i really struggled to find anyone that had gone that far and then like one was just yeah like anytime i saw him or anytime i had conversation with him he was like have you heard this record have you checked out this or like <laughs> just there's like still that like vitality around mm. music that you know and like even like sometimes with like my peers and like people my age you'd like talk to people and you'd be like oh have you heard like this new like there'd be like a record that i'd have heard that i'd be really excited about and people be like, I have no, I've, I know I don't really listen to music. <laughs> you stop, li everyone does that. You did a lot of, well, obviously yeah. you don't, but you kind of stop listening after a while. You're like, I, I just have these bands I liked as a teenager yeah. <laughs> and I don't need to hear any more music ever again. Yeah, I think I maybe, there's maybe something, I think as time's gone on, I'm like, maybe there's something wrong with me. Like, <laughs> I'm like constantly like addicted to trying to find like new music. I think it's that probably that slightly sort of like indie snob teenage mm. version of me <laughs> you want to be the first like, to find it before anyone else <laughs> yeah like i need to be able to be like oh the first ep uh that they put out independently is way better than anything else that i know you're at a party and you're like they don't even know what sample <laughs> this song is using yeah <laughs> i mean they definitely like i remember going through that phase of like yeah like being obsessed with working out like where loads of the samples were coming from and trying to like familiar my familiarize myself with that but i I sort of gave up <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was just you yeah. went down the rabbit hole yeah but, but um, even talking about when what i think what kept him f probably kept his fire going is he he kind of wasn't he in like this prog met racer x is that what they were called yeah but but then the mars volta is like a prog rock band and the guys in it are probably 10 20 years younger than him and like yeah that was a completely fresh band different type of music so he was fearless in that way to go and do a project that was completely different to what he was used to yeah i think like oh, someone's just coming to the studio um I'm sorry that's just good. in case someone walked in um yeah i think i th i mean like i th i wonder with that stuff like i also imagine like part of the reason of him being involved in that is because of that vitality as well like i wonder if that was like 
you know, I just think him being sort of able to hang in that was because of his sort of just how switched on and engaged he was and is with everything. Um, and that, like, almost like I think having been inspired by his musicality, I think then to actually sort of spend time and to be like, oh, actually, that sort of just like life vitality. Like, I feel like from him, I learned so much about just maintaining a passion for music and like he tours so well like you know mm. like he'd have gone out with his bike and would have you know and i i definitely went through like almost sort of slightly depressive stages of touring where it's really easy just to like on days off just stay stay in your hotel room and it I is need like, to de- you go de- into yourself or, yeah i mean and like i like i'm like i like i'm introverted by nature so it's like especially like especially for me sort of like probably the first 20 minutes after coming off of stage I really just need I just need a bit of time mm. time to just sort of like regather my energy um not that it's not like it's that weird thing I have that real buzz but I definitely sort of come off of it and just need I want to sort of be able to enjoy that buzz and have like a little bit of time just to myself and so like especially like then on like a day off on tour having been in like the venue tour bus thing like sort of having that space can be really exciting to be like, oh, I can just be in this space. I don't have to interact with anyone. Um, <laughs> Do you know what I did on the last tour we did in Spain? And I know social media can be a load of bollocks most of the time. But yeah. I, I decided to make a story for the tour. And everywhere we stopped, I'd walk around the town and I'd take pictures of all like oh, statues great. and the fountains and whatever was cool. Like, And then by the end of the tour, I had this story that had nothing to do with well there was musical bits put in as well but it was just this really long story for the whole yeah. tour a story for anyone who doesn't on Instagram it's like a reel of pictures that you, you can save forever so yeah. that was just something that kind of got me out and walked around like you know yeah I think that I definitely sort of hit hit a stage in touring where I just realised I was taking it for granted and then like and then you sort of have that thing of being like I'm traveling the world and like and people would be like oh amazing like you're in this place and I I never like fully would just spend the day in but they they definitely with a I definitely remember having a tour of being like I've been in and like partly it was because it was like oh I've been you know I sort of had that real sort of like like just that weird attitude of being like, oh, I've been here before and and I think it it maybe lasted like a month or so and I remember sort of chatting to Juan and, and, and I just was like, oh man, I just need to reconnect with um, actually just being present in, in like the places that I'm in. And, um, and it was, you know, that was so much better to do. And, and it was that like, I, I then would take like a skateboard around and would do a lot of like, God, that's that's um, dangerous, Simon. Yeah, well, like, I mean, it was. I mean, the tour manager was always like, "You're going to break your wrist or your that's, collarbone, and you're going to be out of action." And I was like, "Oh, it's just like a," I was like, "It's just a cruiser deck. I'll be fine." And like, I, luckily, I, <laughs> I was fine. And like, I but I through that, I sort of developed a bit of a rhythm of like being a total like coffee hound. I'd like try and find like a a real hip coffee place wherever I was, and mm. generally there you could find people that would give you sort of tips on places to check out and. Um, and we ended up like there ended up being like a fun little then like sort of days off ended up being like a bit of a posse of a bunch of like band and crew and we'd all sort of go off and find like nice walks and like nice food and like I mean food became a real big um, 
that was like a real big drive and um just finding really nice restaurants or and and just sort of being able to kind of get back in and experience the touring thing because i think it can be really easy to really easy to just sort of you know on those big ones just to stay in your hotel or and on like and i've definitely been guilty of it on like splitter tours and stuff where you know like actually getting beyond the venue and and like you know the the like the itinerary on on like a splitter tour is just crazy you know it's wild you know and you're you're like packing and unpacking the van and you're all sharing drives and like you arrive at the venue and you maybe have like three hours between unloading the van and sound check and then you maybe have an hour between sound check and a gig if you're lucky yeah you know and i think for me it's been that thing of just in general like trying to get to a place of whenever i'm in those things actually trying to like force myself to <laughs> go out and experience yeah, or, the, or the world that uh, i i often think like back in the day like how did these bands take drugs and drink every day for like a six-month <laughs> tour you'd be absolutely wrecked like no you'd be like if you re- get in the first flight home i'd be like oh i can't like it's it's hard enough without drinking and acting the maggot the whole time yeah yeah i don't know like i never really drink before gigs and stuff like i don't know how like and even then i'm like i drink <laughs> i had like a phone call from my gp the other day like i i like I, it had been like seven and a half years or whatever living here and i've not been registered with a gp the whole time i've been here and obviously like when the when the vaccine was coming around mm. it, i was like oh crap i'm gonna need to register and they they kind of called up and were like just like general health check and they're like how much do you drink and i was like well at the minute not much but I was like, but there was a time <laughs> touring, and then you sort of have that moment where I recollect, and I'm like, man, like, because you sort of like, I like, I almost always, I mean, I was sort of like raised in like the house of like never leave your plate empty, mm-hmm. and um, I applied that to. <laughs> That's the a rider. terrible um, attitude <laughs> yeah. for a musician when it comes to drink, like that. <laughs> yeah, so it was a real like, yeah, like so I kind of adopted a sense of like never leave the rider empty, and and um you know you know the space between finishing a gig and getting on the getting on the bus or going to the hotel or getting in the van it's really not that much time that i'm like i think like it i don't it never was a it never was a problem for me thankfully but it definitely definitely i'm like it definitely wasn't great and i i think some of my actually kind of um reconnecting with being present to touring in the places i was going part part of that was actually kind of not not drinking all of the beer and whiskey on the ride of the night before because that will be like i sort of started to think i was like oh alcohol might give you like a fun night but that's always like that's always the repayment is paid the next day oh god yeah and, you pay um, it in double yeah um, but yeah with interest um so i sort of slowed down a little bit on that and but i don't know how people like i mean like i know people that are like oh yeah like you know pretty much from the time they get to the venue they just drink and i I'd, i don't think i could do that why did i even put alcohol on the rider if the band <laughs> like it's like the temptation it's like yeah. me i just did the shopping before we did this and I don't I generally don't buy loads of sweets and chocolate because I'll eat them oh, I'm yeah. a fiend for it like um, would it not be easier just to not put the alcohol on the riders I know you're you're missing out on that but the te- when the temptation is there like you get you get in trouble <laughs> oh man I mean like I mean it's that difficult thing because there are times when it's really you have those really fun nights where you know 
there's those like blowouts that happen in, and the intensity of like the touring life is like it's those nights can be really good fun but definitely there there are also there's other nights where it almost feels like you're like oh, i don't want to don't want to waste the ride <laughs> but, <laughs> oh um, yeah that's your like teenage mentality it's like yeah you're used to playing for for nothing for a few beers so you're going to drink them and you can't yeah. oh, man, you're, like you're trying to, to lose that <laughs> yeah like it's totally that thing of like showing up at like a club and being given like your tickets for like three cans of red stripe and being like i'm gonna get all three cans of red yeah. stripe or um, even cheese and try to get a few extra flag <laughs> yeah. it <laughs> yeah yeah sort of like work out if if any of the other bands have been careless with their tickets mm-hmm. um, or get your beer but don't give the ticket and then you'll have yeah. one spare <laughs> yeah but um yeah it's i mean like it yeah it's funny that stuff again like actually having that time away from touring and reflecting on some of that stuff i was like I definitely was, was probably at the time was drinking a lot um, if, if you were American you'd be considered an alcoholic like if you were yeah. <laughs> that's the way it is I mean, like, <laughs> yeah it's yeah I mean definitely like it's yeah British it's sort of like if anything like I was never really binge drinking so sure <laughs> like, in, in Ireland like um, if you say it's considered binge drinking if you drink more than if you drink three pints in one sitting apparently that's wild but in Ireland oh, wow. if you you'd be like <laughs> getting cheered out of the pub he's a hero yeah. he only had three pints fair play to him like <laughs> it's just a different attitude like yeah definitely i mean i we at the beginning of actually the beginning of the first lockdown um we i kind of we stopped drinking alcohol because sort of at the beginning of it it was a bit like oh like we'll make this like you know try and make the best of it let's treat it like a holiday and then you're like well, i'm pretty much drinking gin from 1 p.m every day oh jeez. <laughs> <laughs> it was like because the summer here was so amazing last year and it was and it felt like it started from like the second week of lockdown and and it was sort of like just sitting sitting in the garden like drinking nice beers and um and then there was sort of both that sense of being like oh this isn't going to end soon and mm. probably need to stop spending all this money because <laughs> yeah. i'm not making any money <laughs> not and on, then also the holiday is thing. over like need to get <laughs> yeah. some and like definitely then having that thing of being like yeah i'm not sure i need to be um and like definitely like now sort of i was actually like i went out last night to a tap room um which is like my first time actually going out anywhere in belfast in ages and um it was like i had like I had like a couple of beers and it, it was like immediately was like oh I'm really feeling this or even just being around um, people that you don't know yeah. is a bit strange you're like who what, it, you're claustrophobic like you know yeah it's I I had like um when was it I had like my first sort of like bit of work again at the beginning of April just assisting on some stuff with Joe Clegg some MD work and it was in London and it was I'd actually been in London like I'd driven over to London the month before to pick up a load of old touring equipment that was in storage and uh, like bring it home and then I mean like, I really I sold I sold most of it like partly just to like kind of rebuild up some reserves and, and it was like that thing where I was like oh actually I had a lot of this stuff you know there was a lot of stuff that like had just been sat in storage for five or six years and yeah um, and London was still at a similar stage of lockdown to Northern Ireland at that point so it wasn't that weird but when I went back like in April it was England had like opened up like pubs and stuff Mm. and it was just the weirdest it was like I just was sort of like I remember like I landed into London City and then got the 
got the uh, taxi to where I was staying and um, and I just was sort of like holding on I mean it was like the first time I'd been in a taxi it was like all that stuff where you're like looking around <laughs> and have that sort of slight anxiety mm. and I think that like night we went out and like sat in a like a pub garden sort of thing and I was like oh man like this is the first time in sort of six months or whatever that I've been in like a busy in like a busy public social space and um yeah it's a bit weird <laughs> weird getting used to it again but not like but nice like definitely then realize that there's a bit of you that sort of gets some juice that hasn't mm. hasn't even as an introvert you need a bit yeah. of that interaction to get to boost you like oh man i like definitely like i think yeah like i de- i definitely need like my space to myself for my for like to sort of regulate energy or whatever but um but like even there, like I'm fairly like I think on the scale of like introversion extroversion, I'm probably I'm fairly close to the middle. I think it's like and for me, speaking, it's just that slight of, thing. Sorry, go on. Oh no, no, what were you saying? Oh no, I see so you were talking about spaces, like, and I was just thinking you're, you're in like you went to a studio to do this podcast. I'm in my shed, which is <laughs> a f- which is five feet from my kitchen. Yeah. But like, do you do you, do you find, do you think that's better for you, like, to go to your workspace than have in my situation which i just take advantage of it sometimes i'm like oh you know you just don't do as much work sometimes when it's this close yeah. to your house do you do you find that space works for you like to be able to put yourself there like it's well i mean yeah it has i mean partly it's like i get at the beginning at the beginning of 2020 me and a friend had moved into a studio space in the town center of belfast um and i'd been going in there a bunch to work and just sort of explore things and then when the pandemic hit our access to it was kind of through a cafe which was closed and and the way that sort of our kind of very loose sense of tenancy of that space you know it was sort of one of those kind of like mates deal mm. sort of thing but it meant we had no access to it at all so i i kind of took over a spare room at home as a studio space um and at that point like i was mostly doing I'd not really I wasn't really doing any production or writing stuff at that point like beyond sort of like bouncing ideas around with some friends and um but mo- like mostly I was just doing sort of remote base sessions um and that was all like you know you just sort of need a base and an interface and then I did a bit of like I'd set up like an amp in my garage every now and then and once I'd sort of got the take I'd reamp it through an amp um and that will work really well but as things sort of like I have I have two kids so it's like <laughs> daddy what's like, that can I pull yeah. it like play with that bass or whatever yeah and so it'd be like I, I had like a bunch of moments where I'd be really be getting into my flow or whatever on something and then like the door like uh, you know like my kids are like they're three three and seven so it is like particularly the three year old just like bash the door down and like it, he's in and you're like I was like oh this isn't this isn't great and I'm also just sort of taking over this whole room of our house and um and it and I I have that sort I guess like I have that sort of like obsessive nature with with music and like particularly once like an idea has grabbed me I really struggle to let go of it and for me having then sort of a workspace at home I found it really hard to switch off and it's like that that thing of like you know, I'd go upstairs to go to the toilet or whatever, and 
it'd be like dinner but rather than maybe going down the stairs I would sort of lack the discipline to not just like oh I'll just duck into the spare room yeah, so I've had yeah. that idea <laughs> and then like the next thing it's like where where did you go <laughs> and, um so I think for me and then sort of things changed and then the space that we're in now kind of revealed itself um and it you know it was it's been kind of a massive help for me then to like I mean, it's only like five minutes from my house, so it's like I can kind of, you know, walk or cycle here or if I'm lazy, drive, which probably happens more often than it should. Um, <laughs> That's classic. But like, yeah, five yeah, minutes like, is so handy. Like, you know, it's not like you're getting a tube across London or something to get to your space. Nah. Like, Yeah, like it is like just around the corner. So it's, and it's great. And there's sort of like, there's people, there's been people around here. So it's even that sort of having like bits of some social interaction and, um it's been it's been really good um and i think for me it's worked having a space separate from home and it also just means like i mean uh like all my stuff is not like littering the house mm. um and kids I, like I, the break we, stuff we, too kids are terrible for break yeah I, I was um, in a band with a guy a few years ago and he arrived to practice and when he opened his case it was like literally had about a hundred animal stickers on the frets oh, man. not damage now no damage but like you know the the toggle switch on a les paul they had like wrapped the stickers around the toggle switch and just everywhere the whole thing was covered oh, in stickers now it didn't do any damage but they kids just do stuff like that yeah i mean like i think the kids probably met, like we used to, i used to sort of have like synth hour with them a bit every now and then and there's less of the keyboards and stuff around at home um so they probably missed that um but it, yeah I mean like I still probably there's still like a lot of my music gear that at home that probably doesn't need to be there um, but it's also like this space is uh, you know I've filled every like me and my the kind of my studio partner Lee we both have like have a real tendency of like filling space <laughs> so yeah, if you space um, there you, you may as well buy some gear yeah it's sort of like oh there's rack space we should fill that with something um for some of that older gear like it's really cheap because it's really big like because like yeah, yeah. i have a, a room rented in um a charity shop uh for practice for giving lessons and the oh, band great. practice but like a Wurlitzer came in for like tw- and you, i could have bought it for like 20 or 50 quid like it's oh, not mad the old yoke like because where like, was that where is that <laughs> down in um, Tipperary <laughs> you need to call <laughs> me next you know, or like a piano might come I'll in I'll jump straight in the cheap. car you know what I mean like it, that stuff's so big people can't store it anymore so you can yeah. pick it up cheap if you can store it like yeah yeah there's definitely that sort of like yeah there's that like sweet spot of, of being able to get a good price on that although like I feel like I've had a real like um sort of embrace of some like slightly newer stuff recently as well like i'm just like again it's like dealing with like old stuff breaking <laughs> like, yeah that's so annoying um, having broken gear is my pet peeve i just yeah. i try to fix everything during at the moment all my bases so i'm going one at a time replacing yeah. bits it's slow it's, and it's annoying <laughs> oh man and it's like i and it's sometimes and it's finding people like my my sort of facility to do some of that stuff is okay but it's not great like i mean i i think i used to tour i had this like woolly mammoth clone pedal that i made mm-hmm. you made it was it a, a kit off ebay yeah was it? it was like a kit off of like i think like fuzz dog pedal parts or something 
Cool. I have one as well, but it doesn't work properly. Uh, well, I'm not, I'm not sure mine does. It definitely doesn't anymore. And like I, I remember touring it with with it, and I remember there was a phase where every now and then it would sort of like cut out. But I was like, oh, if you kick it, it then works again. <laughs> and uh, I feel like that like is a pretty good summary of my ability <laughs> for fixing yeah, things. I hate I'm, I'm good at the you know getting the bass to play really nice, but yeah. I hate all the electronic stuff, which is why I'm uh. going to go. Um, I have a GNL there, gutting out all the electronics. I just got a ho- a Honer headless bass from the eighties, taking oh, out all the active electronics, making ev- all of them passive because yeah. it's the only one I can fix. Like, oh man, that I like. I yeah, I don't. I would actually. I have like I have one active bass now, but I never use, and never use the electronics in it. And they I, break I though. Have... The thing is, they're not durable. Like all the active bass I have over time, they have so much. It's like. If you the more things you have to go wrong, the more things there are to break. And yeah. when there's like a hundred wires going everywhere in the cavity, you're you're going something's going to go wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I had this. I have like a Jaguar bass that has been like my real like. Um. Yeah, I mean, I've just like I've that poor bass of just like I mean like there's it's probably lost half of the like mass in its body because of <laughs> it, now like it has like three pickups in it now. Mm. And um, but it had like active circuitry in it, which I just immediately gutted. Like, yeah, I think even before I ever did anything, I just pulled it out because I was like, I'm never mm. going to use it. No. Um, and again, it was like for all of that sort of effect stuff that I that I did. I guess like I've found, and I feel like a lot of other people that have explored it have found that there's a uh, an interactivity between like passive instruments. That's and funny pedals that doesn't I don't feel always exists with active. That's funny because I actually was saying that to someone, and then they asked me why is that, and I'm like I don't know. I just found the active pedal, the passive bases work better with pedals. Like. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's. I guess I wonder if it's like an impedance thing. I don't know. Like that's the only thing I could think of. I mean, like I say that, and then I have a friend who he has like an old like pre pre Ernie Ball like Stingray. Um, I actually, and, and I know like another guy who has like a pre Ernie ball, like is it the Sabre, the one with two pickups? And mm. both of them use those for synthy sounds and they like swear by it. But like I think they do do a bit of like boost, boost the low end of them. And like, like one of them, he, he like particularly uses like there was an old, um, like Korg made a unit. It's sort of like in the MS20, there's, um, there's like an audio to CV thing that like can turn audio into control voltage that will control like the pitch of a synth. Mm. Um, and it doesn't always work that well, but this, this guy, John has the, I remember he used to like gig around London and he had the Korg. They did like a separate version of it, which is a bit more refined, but you needed a really specific, like he had like this, um, like preamp and then, and then the old Sabre, um, there's another another bass player I know called Dan who has this pre B music man that seem it like that really works and that seems to really work but I've never really had that same sort of no. success and and they're not so, as advanced uh, a circuitry as like a modern active bass yeah would have, they would have been one of the first ones so I don't think they push the bass frequencies as much as a modern uh, yeah PM. and I wonder if it is like I guess there's all that stuff of like their boost only and like there's all I guess it's like um I had like a brief phase of owning like a five string Sadowski jazz bass <laughs> and like <laughs> during like during my sort of like session chameleon phase yeah. and um 
and I remember like a lot of the chat around that was because that preamp is boost only it colors the sound so I, I don't know I definitely feel like there's a harmonic richness to a passive bass and there's a more it is it does feel more responsive um and the sound of it I just like more in general and like I I have this Yamaha bass which is now the like one of the BB it's like a BB734A um that I have I have like these Delano pickups in and it's I mean like it's tuned for I I kind of got these Delano like the big pole piece pickups because I don't own any five strings now and when I got the call for Kylie I was like this <laughs> some of this I was like low. going through the repertoire and I was like oh, the bass player before me he had like a P bass and then a five string stingray and I was like oh probably gonna need that low note and I was listening to it and I was like oh it never goes lower than like a low C so I had this I already had this Yamaha BB that I'd been using and, and I was like oh I'll I wonder if I just tune that to C standard mm. I reckon that sound great and it did like the pickups didn't quite handle that tuning so I, I spoke to Delano because I tried like a Sandberg bass with those pickups in and it was really punchy and quite aggressive um uh, the bass actually like it would kill in like a metal band or something that would be like i mean it just it, it even just i mean the stock pickups are really the sound of that bass is really growly but it's more that in passive mode and so i've I've kept the active circuit in that but i keep thinking about like putting like a boss oc2 or something into it because <laughs> i saw um stingray or music man just did a, a class oh yeah with, with dark um, glass dark glass yeah but is it really that musical to have the button on your guitar because like when you press it with your foot you can be more yeah. musical you'd be like the riff is coming in right now boom with your foot but <laughs> yeah it's definitely like a harder i mean i i i almost always have i'm not sure the last time i played without some bit of distortion on my bass so i think i always have some on but i'm not that it's like the alpha omega dark glass circuit I'm not sure I'd ever particularly use that as an always on. If it was like the vintage circuit that they have, I love that. I love mm. that one. And I'd often just have that on all the time. Um, there was like a, is it Base the World did like a YouTube video about the, the is it the Jupiter FX Jive, like their tape saturation pedal. Mm. And he has like one built into his bass. And oh, I was nice. like, that I'd be down for. Like, I suppose they could put like, that in your bass really. Like the circuits are small enough. Like yeah. I mean, I've thought about doing it, but I've never... This Yamaha, I think I probably will do it eventually. I just... I feel like it's... I'm not sure I have the skill set. And there's a few people I know, I think, that could do it. There's a guy, Neil Grimes, who has a company, NRG Effects, and I have a bunch of stuff that he's made, and he's just... I mean, like, it's worth, like, checking out his Instagram just for, like... He has photos of his, like, wiring, and it's just it's immaculate like it's just oh yeah you know every wire's at like soldering horns, angles like, i mean amazing, it's just like it? <laughs> yeah so i think like at some point i might but he's like down in the south of england he's like eastbourne but i think at some point i might try and get that base to him and i've i've sort of chatted to him about it on and off about mm. there's a guy in dublin do makes his own effects pedals moose guitar yeah i have a bunch of his stuff as well yeah um i have like the nomad fuzz and then he had he did like a rusty box 
mm. um, thing. I have that. I have a couple of moose things. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, actually, I've not thought of talking to him. Um, it's only down the road you could get the bus down. Or yeah, the I know, that's even. the thing. I'm like, just <laughs> jump on the train. Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe I should do that. So, um, yeah, I kind of want to explore that because it's, yeah, I never really use active circuits. 